And uh, for those who are visiting, we have been going through, I actually need my Bible, <laughs> we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew uh, for our sermon series as we've been considering Christ the King. But being Easter Sunday, we're taking a little break from that. And so we find ourselves in another gospel, in the Gospel of John. And this event is uh, recorded after Jesus has risen. And so we come to John 21, verses 15 through 17. They are recorded in your bulletin if you want to follow along. And these are the words of the Lord. Uh, And actually, I'm going to begin in verse 9. And when they had got on on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, a hundred and fifty-three of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord, Jesus, and came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish... This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything and you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young... You used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you as we come now to your word. And I ask that you would Once again, help us to understand your truth, that you would let us see very clearly in your word to us the face of Jesus Christ, and that we would be reminded again of all the blessings of your covenant love communicated to us through the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, failure, it's it's a sting that is... Far too familiar with us all, is it not? It is something we try hard to forget. I I recently heard a song that actually captures, I think, the the essence of the bitterness of failure in one's life. And it actually came from an artist that I don't really normally listen to. But the lyrics stuck with me as a cry of, of hopelessness. And desperation because of a cycle of sin in which uh, the person singing would be caught. This song comes from a man named Jason Ford who goes by the the, uh, stage name of Jelly Roll. 
And he cries out, though. Listen to these words. He cries out, Somebody save me, me from myself. I've spent too long living in hell. And he goes on and describes his lifestyle and how he is trapped in addiction. And he says, something inside of me is broken. I hold on to everything that sets me free. I'm a lost cause. Baby, don't waste your time on me. I am damaged beyond repair. Life has shattered my hopes and my dreams. And it's such a sorrowful way by a broken person to describe the bitter agony of coming to grips with their own failure, with sin in their own life. I imagine the Apostle Peter in this narrative felt something similar in his life, especially in the days following the crucifixion and then the resurrection of the Lord. For it was Peter who had once boasted of his commitment to Christ, and yet it was Peter who denied Jesus and abandoned him in his darkest hour. Yes, Peter indeed was well acquainted with the bite and sting of failure. However, failure is something, I'm sure, to which we all relate. For who amongst us has not failed in some way? We fail our spouses, we fail our children, we fail our parents, we fail our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors, and most of all, we fail our God. Even those of us who have been Christians for many years, we still struggle with our own old sinful nature. Our confession of faith acknowledges the inescapable reality of sin, even in the life of those who are redeemed, who are God's children, when it says that this corruption of nature, that is our sin nature, during this life, this present life, does remain in those that are regenerated. So if you are a follower of Jesus this morning... There's no doubt sometime in your Christian life when you sinned and you said to yourself, why have I done this yet again? And the grip of conviction comes upon you and you say, how am I so capable of despising the grace of God and, and breaking his law time and time again after so many years in the faith? How is it that I still struggle with this? And it's in those moments that you really begin to feel like a hypocrite. You may have ever even wondered, is is this even worth it? You feel like that lost cause damaged beyond repair. Well, for all of us who have been wounded by our own failures, our own sin... I want to tell you this morning that because Jesus is risen, because he lives, there is hope and there is forgiveness and there is peace and life. If you've ever failed God, if you've ever failed others, I'm confident that describes all of us, then this final narrative in John's gospel is just for you. You see, here we find our resurrected Christ who has breakfast with a bunch of failures whom he called to be his disciples. Here we learn that the redeeming love of the resurrected Jesus is greater than our greatest failures. And there are three things that we learn from this text about Jesus' redeeming love. 
And the first is this, is that the redeeming love of the risen Christ will confront the reality of your sin. To best understand this narrative in John 21, we need to go back and see Peter in the moment of his failure. Well recorded in all four of the Gospels is is Peter's regular boasting of his commitment to Christ. At the Last Supper, Jesus announced to his disciples that he would be taken away from them. And of course, he's speaking of the crucifixion. And Mark records for us in chapter 14 of his Gospel... The words of Jesus, he says to his disciples, you will fall all, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, that is Christ, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me Three times. But Peter says emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. I mean, so confident is Peter in the quality of his faith, that the metal of his love for Jesus, that he boasts, hey, all the other disciples, they might leave you, but Jesus, I won't leave you. I'll follow you even to the death. And so Jesus, knowing what is about to transpire, he predicts Peter's imminent failure. He says, this very night, Peter, before the rooster crows three times or twice, you will deny me three times. Not just one denial, but a threefold denial. And so the night of the, the passion progresses. Jesus goes now to the garden of Gethsemane to pray. There he's betrayed by Judas with a kiss. As the soldiers come to arrest him, Peter again attempts to show his resolve and his commitment to Christ. And John tells us in chapter 18 of his gospel that Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Peter was going to fight. But Christ rebukes him. He rebukes his outburst because the kingdom of Christ will not be won through violence, but by grace. And the night marches on, and Christ is taken to be questioned before the high priest. And in in John, uh, he then picks up that scene in the courtyard of the high priests. In John 18, 15. We read these words. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did the other disciple. That's John. And since the disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. And the servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. And there it is. Peter's first denial. John goes into the court with Jesus, but Peter, once boasting Peter, once confident Peter, feels his courage, his commitment begin to waver. He cannot bring himself to go to the place of the trial. He remains outside, and when approached by the servant girl who would lead him in, And asking him, are you one of the disciples? He says, no, I'm not. 
And this is Peter who once stepped out in faith upon a stormy sea to walk to Jesus. Peter, who was one of the first disciples that acknowledged Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah who came to redeem his people from their sins. This Peter renounces all that he has seen and witnessed in the past three years and he denies that he is one of Jesus' disciples. The trial, of course, continues inside and Peter stands outside warming himself by a charcoal fire. In the cold night. And someone else gathered around that fire recognizes him as one of Christ's disciples. And he says, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And John tells us again in John 18, he denied it and said, I am not. A second denial, which is quickly followed by a third as a relative of the man whom Peter had struck with his sword recognizes himself. Uh, Peter and says, did I not see you in the garden with him? But again, Peter says, no, I am not. And then immediately the sounds of the night resonate with the crowing of a rooster. It been done. That which only a few hours earlier was unthinkable to Peter had become a reality. He had failed his Lord. He had sunk so low to the point that he abandoned Jesus at the moment Jesus needed his friends the most. Peter was a colossal failure. A fact that he would have been reminded of every morning thereafter as he heard a common rooster greeting the dawn. But thanks be to God, he doesn't leave Peter in front of that charcoal fire, rooster crowing, a lonely wail, as Peter mourns and laments with broken heart his utter failure. Because we come now to the text of the incident that we read of this morning at another charcoal fire. Here on the other side of the cross, Jesus has conquered sin and death. He has risen from the grave and the resurrected Lord confronts his failed disciple and meets him in his sin with redeeming love because redeeming love will confront the reality of your sin. In fact, there's a couple of details that tie this event in John 21 to Peter's earlier denial. And they leave us no doubt that Jesus is confronting Peter's sin of denial directly. The first is the interrogation of Peter is once again before a charcoal fire. John mentions that in both chapters, not without coincidence. Secondly, Jesus asked Peter three times if he loves him. And this, of course, is the exact number of times that Peter denied Jesus. And what do we learn from this questioning of Peter by Christ? We see him directly confronting Peter's sin. And my, does it sting Peter. But that's what redeeming love does. You see, sin just can't be excused in our lives. It cannot be ignored. It cannot be dismissed. It cannot be rationalized or diminished. Because God is holy. Perfectly holy. And that which is unholy must be reckoned with. And what we see happening at this breakfast 
at the lake shore is a reckoning with sin. He asked Peter a very direct question three times. Do you love me? And he's driving at the very heart of Peter's failure because love involves commitments. And Peter's denial revealed that he wasn't as committed as he believed he truly was. Peter felt the bruising reality of his sinful failure. And and we notice in verse 18 that when Jesus asked Peter a third time if he loved Jesus, we notice that Peter was deeply grieved. He had a deep sorrow, a pain, because Christ was questioning the quality of his commitment, and Peter knew it was very weak. Redeeming love will confront your sin, and it will expose it. And so when you feel the pain and the weight of your own failings, do not hide them from Christ. Do not rationalize them. Do not argue them away as if they are not sin. But instead, agree with God, confess your sins for what they are, for in that soul-crushing pain of confession, the redeeming love of Christ will begin to work. Our failures cannot be hidden from the face of God. He sees all of them. The author of Hebrews writes, uh, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom he must give accounts. So sin must be confronted. And the bruising reality of our own darkness comes before the comfort and mercy of grace. But know this, that when you do confess your sin to God, the mercy and grace will come. Because not only does redeeming love confront the reality of our sin, but redeeming love creates restoration where once there was failure. Jesus, or just as Jesus doesn't ignore Peter's failure, he also does not hesitate to bring forgiveness and restoration to him. The purpose of Christ's questioning, which left Peter wounded, was not to shame him, but to heal him. And so look again at our texts. Notice that every time Peter responds with, Lord, you know that I love you, Jesus follows it with a command. Verse 15, he says to Peter, feed my lambs. Verse 16, tend my sheep. Verse 17, feed my sheep. All three of these commands are essentially speaking of the very same thing. What Jesus is speaking of here is, of course, Peter's calling as an apostle of Christ, a leader in the church. Jesus was restoring Peter to his role to serve as an apostle, as a shepherd, as a pastor of the church. And so we begin to see with that this truth that Redeeming love does restore those who fall, those who fail. Notice that the the sheep that Peter speaks of are his sheep. They're not Peter's. Christ instructs Peter, who had just a couple of weeks prior denied him publicly, to now publicly serve the very flock Christ had laid down his life to save. And what we learn from that is there is no failure so great that God cannot restore the one who falls and use them again in his kingdom to glorify him. 
I mean, if Christ can restore Peter, who publicly denied Jesus in that dark hour, then surely he can do the same for you and I when we feel the failure in our own lives. Secondly, note the questions uh, Jesus does not ask of Peter when he questions him. He doesn't ask Peter, Peter, are you going to do better next time? Are you going to keep my commandments better? Will you obey me better in the future? Or will you fail me again? No, he only asks him, Peter, do you love me? You see, to be restored by the redeeming love of Christ isn't so much a matter of what we promise to do for Jesus, but of our faith in Jesus. Restoration and forgiveness is not based on our vow to serve Christ no matter what the cost, nor is it dependent on how remorseful we might feel or how sincere we might sound. Don't get me wrong, those are good things. But redeeming love doesn't need boastful promises that we're going to do better in the future. Restoration after failure is based on one thing alone. It is based on the mercy of God in Christ who redeemed us with his own sacrifice. So it's important to remember here that in the Bible, saving faith involves love and trust and rest in Christ and his work on the cross to save us. And so when Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? He's asking him, Peter, do you trust me? Are you leaning on me? Are you relying on my promises as the only redeemer of the people of God to save them from their sin? Now remember, Peter, at one time, he thought he did this better than all the disciples. He thought his faith and his trust and his rest and his love were so deep that he would never sinfully deny Christ. That's why Peter asks him, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these other disciples? And of course, Peter knows, no, I denied you. I fled just as they did, but I denied you. But notice what he says, Peter, to the Lord. He says, Lord, you know, you know that I love you. And those two little words, you know, are very important. Peter is not appealing to the strength of his commitment to Christ. He isn't appealing to how deep his love is. He isn't boasting that his trust in Jesus is better than that of the other disciples. Now he is appealing to the only thing he can, the gracious knowledge of Jesus. The word Peter uses when speaking of Jesus' knowledge has some very interesting nuances. It it refers to the past act of seeing with a present effect of knowing what has been seen. Jesus had borne witness to Peter's faith. He had seen him step out of the boat in the storm and try to cross it. He heard Peter profess in Matthew 16, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But Jesus also knew that that faith of Peter's was weak faith. So when Peter says, Lord, you know everything, you know that I love you, he's confessing two realities. First, the weakness of his own love, his own faith in Christ. He understands now 
that even his faith isn't what it needs to be. He's acknowledging his weakness. But secondly, he's confessing, and this is a precious gospel truth, Peter is confessing that despite the weakness of his faith, his unsteady love, Jesus still knows Peter as one of his own. In spite of the fact that Peter had previously denied it. And so it was Jesus' redeeming love for Peter that restored him to service after his colossal failure rather than Peter's love for Jesus. As John says in his first letter, we love God because he first loved us. Now don't mention, don't miss the connection between God's love for us and our love for Him. Grace is what saves and restores us. And grace is an act of God's love towards us. And as we become recipients of that grace through faith, simply by falling upon God's promises to do everything on our behalf, to accomplish salvation for us through Jesus the Son, now that means that we can love Christ simply through faith. That's the heart of the Reformation concept of sola fide, salvation by faith alone. And thanks be to God that restoration after failure on our part isn't dependent upon the strength of our faith, the perfection of our love. If you are known by Christ, you are already His. Redemption is based on His love for you alone. And that love is infinitely pure, infinitely perfect. It's so great that it stretches back to the time before time even existed, before there was a universe. That's what Paul talks about in Ephesians 1, where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So, brothers and sisters, when you fail the Lord, know that Jesus will restore you to himself, not based on the strength of your love towards him, but if you come in humbleness and brokenness, based on his eternal love for you, you are restored. No matter how weak your faith may feel or how faint your love seems, or how painful the moment of failure is, He will restore you. So cling to His promises in faith and, and know that while your faith and love for Jesus may be weak and it feels as if your grip on those promises is slipping, there is a nail pierced hand that is clasped over yours and it will not let you go. Redeeming love creates restoration where once there was failure. But you say, well, pastor, what if I fail again? And fear of failure is often what fully keeps us from committing to serving Christ with our lives. And no doubt Peter had that great apprehension about failing Jesus once again. 
which leads to the final point quickly is the, about redeeming love is the, and it is this it is that redeeming love the redeeming love of our risen Lord gives us assurance of his future grace the Lord's closing words in this text are a prophecy about Peter's future Jesus is predicting that Peter will die a martyr's death This phrase, stretch out your hands, was a common way to speak of crucifixion. Jesus is saying, Peter, you're going to be put to death and you will die in the exact same manner that I, your Lord, your King, was put to death upon a wooden cross. And uh, the tradition of history tells us that is how Jesus died. In fact, by the time John put down in writing the words of his gospel, Peter had already been executed for his faith under the reign of Emperor Nero. And some sources indicate that Peter was crucified upside down because he felt unworthy to die in the same manner as the Lord. Now, this prophecy at first seems very foreboding. I mean, Jesus is predicting Peter's death here. But there is grace here. There is hope, certain hope. You see, Peter, Peter who had denied Jesus at Christ's death, would in the end suffer a death similar to Christ because of his commitment to Christ. Peter lived with this prediction for many years after Jesus made it, knowing full well what would happen at the end of his life. He would die a martyr's death. And what we see in that is a gracious promise, because despite his failure in the past, and despite his future failures, which actually we know happen because we read of them in other portions of the scriptures, Despite those failures, Peter, in the end, would be faithful to the Lord because the Lord was faithful to him. Peter would glorify God with his life and death. He would remain committed to Christ because Christ would keep him as his own. And if Christ can forgive and restore Peter after his tragic denial, then he will certainly forgive Peter of any future failures that he may have. And the same is true for you and I. When we feel the sting of failure, but then confess and we're restored by redeeming love, you can be assured that as you struggle through the ups and downs of life, your sanctification in Christ through failure and restoration, when you struggle through that, if you keep coming back to the mercy of God, you will always be forgiven. Redeeming grace conveys, it reassures us of the future grace of God in our lives. Now, there's two caveats with that I want to mention in in closing that are important to remember. That doesn't mean that we can just go ahead and sin. It isn't a license to go and live in a manner that does not glorify God. You cannot, as a Christian, have the attitude that, well, I'm going to be forgiven anyway, so I might as well go ahead and sin. That's a gross misunderstanding of the gospel. It shows that you really don't understand the nature of redeeming love as one that will confront the reality of your sin, as we saw earlier. And that's why Paul tells us in Romans 6, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? 
But the second thing here is that we realize from this truth that redeeming grace reassures us of future grace. We realize from this truth that there is forgiveness and restoration for our future failings. And so then, as we are assured of that, we know that we are eternally kept as God's child and that Christ will be glorified in us so we can live for His glory. Not perfectly, but in gratefulness and faith. And so let us then take the attitude of Peter when we are faced with the reality of our imperfect love for Jesus and the weakness of our faith in Him. Peter wrote in his first epistle, he said, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Peter certainly knew and experienced that himself. Redeeming love, the redeeming love of the risen Christ will confront the reality of your sin. Therefore, confess it to the Lord. Redeeming love will create restoration where once there was failure. Therefore, trust in the forgiveness that Christ extends to you. And redeeming love will convey and reassure you of God's future grace in your life. And for all eternity, therefore, believe his promises and live for him each day without fear of condemnation. Welcome to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Welcome to a risen Savior who has breakfast with failures like us. Father in heaven, we are so indeed thankful for the mercy and grace of Christ that is extended to us each and every day, each and every moment. Father, I pray for your people that you would continue to impress upon our hearts and minds these great truths, that you would continue to assure us that in Jesus there is no condemnation, that we might enjoy your love and your presence both now and for all eternity. For we serve a risen Savior who has redeemed us to yourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.